Hi, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that this morning is an encouraging time for you and your family as we spend time in the Word and spend time uh, hearing the songs and singing along with the songs that uh, remind us of the truths of the gospel that we love and cherish so dearly. So we pray that uh, this morning you would be encouraged and that you would be able to worship in spirit and in truth our great God and Savior. As we uh, meet together, uh, not the way we'd like to, but as we are able, I'd like to uh, pray with you this morning. I'm reflecting on Psalm 46. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength in every, in a very, sorry. Keep going, sorry. Yep, just pick up there. Sorry. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. We thank you today, Father, that you are our fortress, that you are our help. We recognize that in these days, there are those individuals who are fearful of the future. We are thankful, Lord, that you 
are the one who holds the future. And because of that, we have confidence in you as we, as we simply cast ourselves upon you and as we cause our eyes to fall, to fall upon you, we ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength that we need. This is our prayer. We ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, uh, verse 23, down to the end of verse 3 of chapter 12. When we get to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you'll notice that it's a section you're familiar with. Uh, you've almost undoubtedly heard messages on those verses or lots of allusions to those verses uh, over your time in church. And so I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time in it. You should be familiar with it as it is, but we often don't consider it sort of in its context. And so hopefully this morning we'll be able to put those three verses in chapter 12 uh, into their proper context flowing out of Hebrews 11. It's of course a chapter that is about faith, giving us examples of faith and calling us to faith in God. So whatever the circumstances uh, of our lives and this last week, and we do want to acknowledge that there have been uh, some folk in in our community as a church who have experienced a great loss this week and we want to be mindful of them and hold them up in prayer and in love and support um, this chapter again reminds us not to not to walk by sight not by what we can see and that even through uh, difficult times of of personal loss and death uh, God is still our God and his love endures forever and we can trust him. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses's uh, parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, 
There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, before we uh, consider this passage together, let's just bow for a moment in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we would ask that you, by your Spirit, would open your word to us this morning. Uh, give me, I would pray, facility of thought and uh, dexterity in speech to be able to communicate your truth. But Lord, we know that whatever words are used is only by your Spirit's power that hearts can be touched, lives transformed and changed. So be pleased to do that. Please touch our hearts in the way that only you can. And Father, we, we know that this week uh, there are people in our faith community who have suffered personal loss. Uh, and Father, we just pray that you will strengthen them, that you will uphold them, uh, Lord, it is difficult at any time to have to process death and dying. And for those uh, in our church this week who have had to do that, we just pray that you will be with them, help them to strengthen and draw comfort from one another, but ultimately from you. Give them all that they need and give us what we need this morning to profit by your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this chapter uh, gives us a few specific examples, uh, Moses, uh, Rahab, and uh, others, but it also just mentions a few people in passing, you know, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and, and the author is in such a rush, he basically says, listen, I would love to talk to you about these people at length, but I don't have any time. You're just going to have to, I'm going to give you the name and you're going to have to know the story. And so there's a very real sense in which that's what I'm going to have to do this morning as well. Uh, although there are great lessons to be learned uh, from these characters, and actually sometimes not the lessons that you normally learn in Sunday school, uh, when you study these characters sort of in, in fullness, there are all kinds of things to learn about faith and about God. And we'll see some of those lessons, but frankly not many of them. We're going to be working with general principles rather than specific details. One of the things that becomes apparent, though, sort of at a macro level as you go through this passage, is that the lived experience of those with faith is very, very different in many ways. 
There isn't one sort of cookie cutter approach to how God deals with people. Some people go through life and they seem to be relatively just crowned with blessings and happiness and joy. Other people experience tremendous adversity and hardship and suffering. And there are stages, there are phases in our walk with God. We experience as stages as individuals, uh, societies experiences sort of rising and falling of fortunes in God's providence, and churches go through phases as well. Uh, here at Crestwick, over the last number of years, you know, if you look at the last 40 years, 50 years of the church's history, you know that there have been all kinds of stages and events that the church has experienced. And last week, uh, when I announced that I'm going to be stepping down as the lead pastor, uh, one of the things that you know we just need to recognize is that in uh, God's mercy and grace, uh, we were able over these you know eight and a bit years, we were, we've been able to have uh, a relationship that I believe has honored God. Uh, the church has grown in, in every way that matters. Uh, the church, I believe is much stronger now than it was a, you know, a decade or so ago. And that's actually one of the reasons that uh, I have confidence that now is, is a time when I can go. I, I, I do not believe that really in any way the church needs me. Uh, there's an excellent board, there's a phenomenal staff, and God is still in control of the world. Christ is still building his church. And so everything is going to be just fine. Things will be okay. That does not mean that there will not be challenge. Everyone in this chapter experienced challenge. But they trusted in God. They move forward by faith. And so we make our plans and, and our staff and the deacons and elders in consultation with others uh, our, our church is going to be putting forward and putting together, as time goes on, a plan uh, for the future. But we never trust our plans. We trust our God. And so although we will make the, the best plans possible, we'll use the best of our wisdom and judgment in going forward, uh, we ultimately, of course, trust in God. This chapter tells us that actually Moses' parents, verse 23, they saw that he was very special, and they were willing to trust God, even though it meant defying the edict or the command of the most powerful person in the entire world. Egypt was the superpower of the day. The king of Egypt had the sort of absolute sway in his nation. And so the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, was the most powerful person in the entire world. And Moses' parents decided they would obey God, they would trust God, they would have faith in God, even though that meant running afoul of Pharaoh's decree. That's a lot of faith. That's the kind of faith that we are called to as well. No matter what, no matter what the human opposition, we trust in God. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, interestingly enough, did not just coast on his parents' faith. He decided to exercise his faith himself. He also 
did not align himself with Egypt. He also, just like his parents, refused to go along with the social structure and order of the king. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Uh, he chose to suffer for righteousness. That becomes a theme in, this, in the rest of this chapter. People suffered greatly, not because of their sin, but because of their righteousness. They were persecuted for doing what was right. Now, in many, in many cases, you will have a choice at, at different times in life. Do you want to experience the pleasures of sin, which are pleasurable? I mean, this becomes almost like a, just, just an obvious analytical fact. If there was no pleasure in sin whatsoever, no one would be tempted towards it. The reason people sin is that because of our sin nature, there is a pleasure associated with it. In fact, in some ways, you could almost argue that virtually every sin can be analyzed or parsed into a, a proper experience, or sorry, an experience of pleasure, and, and the pleasure is good, but it's pleasure which is improperly experienced. And so sin is pleasurable, but only for a very short period of time. And there are consequences to it in this world and in the life to come. So Moses, and think to being Pharaoh's daughter, Moses has all the privileges you could want, really. He has, he has tremendous opportunity to, to get ahead in the world. He has a tremendous opportunity to have a lot of what the world provides. He looks at that, just like, just like Joseph before him, and he says, no, I, I want to identify with the people of God. I want to share their lot, even though it means giving up pleasures that I could have. He chose, rather, to be disgraced for the sake of Christ. And he, he decided, I will honor God rather than experience the treasures of Egypt. All of the money, all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the pleasure that Egypt can provide, I will account that as nothing compared with the greater privilege and pleasure of honoring God. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of God, for the sake of the Redeemer, I will forego the temporal pleasures of sin in the world. He did this, the text says, because he was looking ahead to his reward. This is not mercenary, but it, but it is nonetheless a reality. Just like Abraham and the patriarchs were looking forward past Palestine to their real country, their real home, the, the city whose architect and builder is God himself. So Moses, in assessing uh, real reward and treasure, says, you know, what, what the king of Egypt can provide me with is nothing compared to what the king of the universe can provide me with. And so he looks past this temporal horizon to eternity, to the future, to his real home, to his real reward. And he trusts that it will be greater. He left Egypt. In this sense, somewhat like Abraham leaving his country, Moses also leaves what he knows. He's not, he, does not, he's not, he does not fear the king's anger. And it's a fascinating thing is that he persevered because he saw him who was invisible, or who, who, who is invisible. Think about that. 
you know, look around the world, look at your own life, and, and you see all kinds of dangers, all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of sorrow. But do you see the one who is invisible? Do you see the one you love? To actually understand, to be seen and known and understood, to see and know and understand. There, there are ways of seeing spiritually and psychologically that, that go beyond the, the physical sight that comes through our eyes and those images that are reconstructed and interpreted in our brains. No, by faith, we say, you know, over and over again, we walk by faith and not by sight, and that's true. But in a paradoxical sense, we walk by faith and not by sight because we do see. God opens the eyes of our heart so we see him who is invisible. And in this way, yes, I know, I know that, um, I know that a lot of times God seems like he's really far away. And you long for that closeness with God. And yet, isn't it also true that sometimes God is the most tangible thing where, where you don't see his physical form, but, but you, you see him somehow. He's real and powerful and present. How can you be willing to to give up everything to follow God? How, how can you be willing to, to forsake the pleasures of sin? How can you be willing to, to, to oppose the king who has the power of life and death over you? It's because at a more profound level, you see him who is invisible. And the one who is invisible is not the king of Egypt. The one who is invisible is the king of kings who reigns on the throne of the universe. That's how he persevered. He saw God. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. You're familiar, of course, with the Passover story, the substitutionary blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost and, and applied to the doorpost by faith. And you don't slaughter your lamb and put blood on your door unless you trust what God has said and you're being obedient. And this becomes, a great, of course, the great symbol of redemption where uh, the blood of the lamb covers those who have faith so that when the angel of death passes by, the angel of death does not see the sinful inhabitants in the home. The angel of death sees the substitutionary blood and moves on. The blood covers the sinner from death. The same way that on the Ark of the Covenant, you have the cherubim carved into it, looking down, so that when, when the blood is placed sort of on the lid of the altar, when, when they look down, what they see is the blood. The, the substitutionary blood is always what covers our sin. 
And the angel of death passes by because it's sinners who die. And when the blood covers the sin, the angel of death, their job has already been done. Because the blood is already there. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So what you have here is, is you have this whole movement by faith. It's, it's typological, it's prophetic. It's a picture of the great fulfillment that comes with Christ. But what you have is, is substitutionary atoning blood, liberation out of slavery, miraculously brought out, and then here also he, he sort of telescopes it very quickly so that you, you come out of Egypt and then you come right into the promised land and even Jericho itself, the, the, the walls fall down before you. So it's reminding you that by faith there's redemption, there's liberation, and there's entrance into the promised land. Uh, we would say this is really pointing forward to uh, the atoning death of Christ, uh, liberation and redemption from bondage and slavery and sin and fear, etc. Liberation and being brought out into freedom and then eschatological hope and glory. Now, the way that the walls of Jericho fall, of course, is insane in terms of military strategy. Um, walk around the city. Well, just, just, just go out there and, and your battle plan is walk around the city. Every day for seven days. Except on the seventh day, you'll walk around it seven times. Then you're going to just, just see what God does. It takes trust to follow through with a with a plan like that that's absolutely silly in every possible way. Except that God told you to do it and, and, and God also told you that, that you had to trust him and he'd take care of it. Look, we guys, we, we serve a God who can conquer a city by having his people walk around it. With a God who can do that, is there really any reason to have anxiety about the future of the church here? Really? If God can provide for salvation and redemption and liberation and eschatological glorification. Are we really worried about what, what he's going to do in the next little while? No, he, he calls us to walk by faith. And then he gives us all of the reason and evidence in the world to cause us to trust in him. Now in verses 32 through 40, you just get uh, all of these uh, people, uh, and then you also get, without mentioning specific people, you get all kinds of experiences and events that people experienced. Uh, you know, conquering kingdoms, administering justice, shutting the mouths of lions, quenching the fury of the flames, escaping the edge of the sword, uh, receiving back their dead, conquering foreign armies, 
refusing to be released, being jeered at, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned to death, sawed into, killed by the sword, going around in sheepskins and goatskins, persecuted, hated, poor, living in caves and holes in the ground. Now, a lot of these, if you actually just think carefully about your, the Old Testament, you can find illustrations for, for most of those events. It was a, it was, it was a hard lot. It was, th this describes a tough go. And, and it's amazing that there is triumph that comes out of those kinds of situations. But that's not the most surprising thing about this text. The most surprising thing about this text is not that somehow through all those horrible conditions, God's grace and strength triumphs. The shocking thing is at the very beginning, verse 32. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. Have you actually read the biblical material about those people? Gideon, Samson, Jephthah. It is actually awfully hard to hold them up as examples for emulation. In fact, particularly with Samson, one might want to suggest that the tenor of his life is an example of what not to do unless you're completely uh, intent on utterly abusing the gifts God has given you. He uses his great strength in the, in the most crassly selfish ways. With no concern whatsoever for what's right. Just read the text. Read the text without needing to read it through a Sunday school filter where, where, where the idea is, well, if someone in the Bible did it, what they did was right. Just read the text. It's deplorable. He doesn't care about anyone except himself. Jephthah, at the end of his life, sacrifices his daughter. David, although there are many good things to say about David, David was a great, great man. Sometimes it takes a great man to sin greatly. Most of us are so mediocre, even our sins are mediocre. Not David. What David did was always huge. The good he did was incredible. The evil he did was tremendous. Not just with Bathsheba. Not just with the census. With the wanton bloodthirstiness. The slaying of so many innocents. So what do you learn about 
What do you learn here? You know, you learn about faith, but to bring Paul into the equation, how are we saved? For it is by what? Grace you are saved. Saved by grace through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we appropriate the grace of God. Faith clings to the grace of God. But we are saved not even by our faith. We are saved by God's grace. We are saved by Christ. Our faith desperately clings to God because there's no one else to cling to. Our faith clings to Christ. But the only reason we can cling to Christ is because of God's grace. God's grace has a logical priority over our faith. So we read this list. You say, how, how can any of these people be representatives of faith? And it's because they're representatives of faith because they were trophies of God's grace. This is so important to understand. Every one of these people in this chapter failed enormously at different times. Catastrophic errors do not erase the grace of God in someone's life. Failures do not erase the grace of God in someone's life. Deliberate sin does not erase the grace of God in someone's life. Yes, I know. There's that if you if you have genuine faith, there's evidence of. I get that. But but honestly, if if the only people who are going to be saved. If the only people who have, if the only people who have faith in God are are, are people who are perfect, then you then you can just just blot out Hebrews eleven because none of these people measure up, and neither do I, and neither do you. If it's perfection, then there is no Hebrews eleven in the Bible, and that new heavens and new earth is going to be completely empty of human beings. No. The smallest bit of faith. The smallest little bit of faith is enough for salvation. When Jesus says, I tell you, if you have you know, faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this tree to go plant itself in the ocean, you can tell this mountain to move. He's not saying, hey, imagine what you could do if you had lots and lots and lots of faith. He's saying... Guys, the smallest amount of genuine faith is enough. He, he's not talking about quantity. He's talking categorically. He's saying, if there's any faith there whatsoever, it is enough to do miracles. So, when people sin and when people make mistakes, and when people exercise poor judgment, and when people do all kinds of terrible things, the hope is always in the grace of God. 
that he is merciful and forgiving. And that where there is genuine faith, there is eternal life. Because of the merit of Jesus Christ. As much as these people were hate, I mean, you don't, you don't torture, jeer, flog, imprison, and kill people unless you hate them. All of the powerful people of the world hated these people. And yet the world was not worthy of them. The analysis and perception of the world does not count when it comes to evaluating how precious the people of God are in his sight. All of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. None of these people in this chapter, none of these people in this Old Covenant era, experienced the fullness of the blessings of God. Those could only come through Christ. And God's plan, very obviously, here, is not to have one program for the people in the Old Testament and a brand new program for the people in the New Testament. He plans something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. These Old Testament saints, these New Covenant believers, they are brought together. Something better for us so that only together with us. There's a radical, beautiful unity as God grafts things together. Only together with us would they be made perfect. Sometimes. Two things. Become one. So that what was you and I becomes us and we. And together, it's perfect. Because of this, therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, great here is probably quality and quantity. Because there are these people who have witnessed to God by their faith, because of that, you want to run your own race well. You want to run your own race well because you're following in the footsteps of people of faith. You are also establishing a legacy for others to watch. So how do you do that? You get rid of sin. Moses is willing to give up the pleasures of sin. Get rid of sin and everything else that hinders so you can run the race. And you've heard countless messages about this idea. Not everything is sin, but certain things that are good and healthy in themselves can slow you down. They can take your attention off the Lord and they can hinder your race. So, is there anything intrinsically wrong with smartphones? Well, actually, that's, a, that's almost a trick question. Uh, obviously, yes. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with the internet? No. Can the internet hinder your run 
your race, walking with God? Of course. Of course. Are, are there things on the internet which stimulate sin? Of course. Yes. And not just things, you know, oh, there's internet pornography, there's all these things. Yes, obviously there are things that are obviously bad. But there are also just the, the, the most brain-dead, futile conversations going on online where everyone's ignorant in, in both senses of the term, sort of meaning uninformed and rude. Where people, the, the internet, these, a lot of times in the comments people make about various things, just brings out the worst in people. All the gossip that's on there. I, yeah, there, there, there's a lot. There's an awful lot of garbage online. So yes, there's stuff on there that, that is just, just absolutely sinful. There's, there, it's, you can't redeem it if you try. But there's also just a bunch of stuff on there that just literally wastes your time in life. That, that actually may... I'd make a long argument uh, if I had time and you had the attention span. Um, you can make a long argument that the internet and various things actually just destroy our attention span. So that what you need is you need to cultivate an ability to be quiet and think and meditate and read scripture. And I would suggest that today, one of the things that is killing us and crippling us in terms of, of spirituality is that our whole entire life context is antithetical to quiet contemplation. So that when we try to have a quiet time, we literally can't because we are so used to having our phone dinging all the time that we can't settle down and actually focus on God. So in that sense is the internet, all this stuff, is it intrinsically sinful? No. There's some stuff on there that is absolute garbage, yes. But it can also clearly and obviously become something which hinders you in your race with God. Is money intrinsically bad? No. Can pursuing money be something which hinders your race with God? Of course. You, you understand. So get rid of it all. Get rid of it all. And how are you going to be able to do that? Well, you get rid of it all by fixing your eyes on Jesus. You focus on him, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So of all of these people who are examples of faith, Jesus is the perfect exemplar. Jesus is the perfect one whom we imitate. His faith was perfect. He trusted in God. He fully obeyed his father in every way. He blazed the trail for us, and now we follow him. Now, how did he do this? Because Jesus suffered more than any of these people in this chapter suffered. Well, he was willing to endure the cross and scorn its shame. Why? Because there was joy set before him. This is, you know, Viktor Frankl um, coming out of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany put together sort of the psychoanalytical theory where he said, you know, we, he said, I, I, I knew in the concentration camps when someone was, was, when it was inevitable that someone was going to die. There's obviously some, you know, there, there's physical maladies, 
but he said it, it, it was when it was when you could, when you could see they had no more hope. Oh, as long as there's hope before us. As long as there's joy set before us, you can endure the cross. Jesus went through the experience of, of satisfying the wrath of the Father on the cross because there was joy on the other side. And, and so that our faith looks past the suffering, or, or it tries to, or, or, or it, it longs to, or, or it stirs up in your heart. It says, you know, like, even if you can't see the joy past it, there, you, you know there is joy there. Just, just, just hold on. And the world, like the cross, may break you. But endure it. Even when you don't feel it, endure it. Because you may not feel the joy that's on the other side, but it's there. Christ endured the cross, triumphed over it, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning on high. There, there is ultimate eschatological victory. Don't forget it. Because in this life, you will experience pain and sorrow. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The horror of the cross was overruled by joy and honor and love. So don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Let, let God make your heart into something beautiful and protect and guard that heart. Don't, don't get tired. It's, it, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look through and past the cross. Look through and past the suffering. And even if you can't see or taste or feel the joy on the other side, fix your eyes on Jesus. You can see him. You can see how much he loves you with what he's done for you. See him who is invisible. See the living God. See the risen Christ and run and do not grow weary and do not lose heart. As Aslan in the form of an albatross says to Lucy, courage.
dear heart. Well, may God strengthen us. May God give us that courage. Courage, dear heart. May God bless you and strengthen you to run the race, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. and hunger.